All right, so we have a large task ahead of us this morning. We have 52 verses to get through. Normally we go through about 25, so we're only going to be here for twice the amount of time. So buckle up, hope you brought some coffee or something, and uh, let's, let's get to cracking on this. I don't want to spend too much time in review because we do have so much to do, but we do need to remember where we were last week, right? So uh, Saul and Jonathan and 600 men with trembling knees uh, were under a pomegranate tree. And the, the Philistines had a raid in battle against them after Jonathan went and struck down the garrison at, at uh, Gibeah. And there, there's 60,000 or 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and warriors on foot uh, like the sand of the sea. They're, they're just completely surrounded. And at one point, uh, three parties break off from the main body and block all of the escape routes for Saul and his men. And, and also blocking out any chance that they could get reinforcements. So they are completely surrounded. And then to top that off, only Saul and Jonathan have swords. Everybody's out there, don't, don't bring a stick to a sword fight, right? They, they had sticks or clubs and, and uh, they were not armed very well. And then it finishes with, then the Philistines, let's see, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash, right? And you hear that horn, and it was, you know, the steps of all these guys walking up, and it's, it's intense. And, and that's where I left you last week quite rudely, I might say. Uh, but we're going to pick up today, and we're going to finish that. Let's see what happened. Uh, if you ran out of the door this morning, you forgot your Bible, feel free to shoot up your hand. We'd love to bring you one. But today, I'm not going to read all 52 verses to you. Um, I've had a, a few people uh, let me know that they uh, have nodded off a couple of times out there, and I feel like if I read all 52, I might lose everybody. So we're going to stick with 23 today. So we're going to read verses 1 uh, through 20. Yeah, let's do 23. That sounds good. Let's do 23. So 1 Samuel chapter 14, uh, starting in verse 1. Now the day came that Jonathan and the son of Saul, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in uh, Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. And Ahijah, the son of Ahatab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing the ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp crag on one side and a sharp crag on the other side. And the name of one was Boses, and the name of the other was Senem. The one crag rose on the north opposite of Michmash, and the other on the south opposite of Edom. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. His armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am, with you according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come out to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands. And this shall be the sign to us. When the both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they've hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. 
Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer put some to death after him. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half furrow and an acre of land. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earthquakes so that it became a great trembling. Now Saul's watchman in Gibeah, Benjamin, looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went here and there. Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now and see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Then Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God was at the time uh, with the sons of Israel. While Saul talked to the priest, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Bethlehem. God add his understanding to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, a simple prayer this morning. What we have not, please give us. May your words be our words, Lord. May your word be proclaimed in this service, in this week, in our community, in our world, Lord. We love it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I told you. I told you last week. Isn't Jonathan a beast? Right? He's just a beast. And I couldn't wait to dig into this, this passage. So let's not delay. We're going we're gonna to jump in there. I've got this handy dandy little thing here. There we go. Got to turn it on. And here we go. Boom. Nope. Boom. Nope. There we go. All right. There we go. Verse 1. Now the day came. Okay? So there it is. The day came. This is... Battle's about to happen. They're either going to get wiped off the face of the planet or something is going to happen. The day came, and Jonathan, the son of Saul, and he says to his young armor bearer, he says, let's cross over there. Now, one problem. It's the day came, right? This is the big day. Why are we talking about Jonathan again? Why are we back to Jonathan? You remember in chapter 13, Jonathan was the one that got all the headlines. Saul took the credit, but... Again, we're sitting here in verse 14, and the first thing we get is Jonathan. He's audacious. He doesn't tell his father what to do, and you can probably imagine why. You remember what happened the last time he didn't tell his dad what he was going to do, and now we see all the Philistines. So he doesn't tell his father why, and, and he says, let's, let's go across over to that Philistine garrison over there. And then, why wouldn't he tell his father? Well, he, like I said, his father was probably ticked after the last time, and Maybe Saul was devising some sort of a great battle plan, right? Maybe he was busy. Let's, let's see what Saul was doing. Verse 2, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. Okay, that sounds good, I guess. That, sitting there can also be trans, or that staying there can also be translated sitting. So Jonathan is looking at the situation. He says, let's do something. Saul is sitting under a pomegranate. Too great. Who's he with? We don't have time to dig into this too deeply, but you might recognize a few names here. There's the 600 men, 
right? And the, the guys that were trembling, their knees were knocking. And then there's Ahajah, the son of Ahatub. I don't really sound anything. Ichabod's brother. Ichabod. We know Ichabod, right? Remember, remember what Ichabod's name means? Where is the glory? The glory is departed. Yeah, where is the glory? And he just happened to be the son of Phineas, the son of Eli. Oh, they came back into the picture. I told you we'd bump into him one more time. This is this is when we bump into him here. So <laughs> Saul is there, and he's sitting under the pomegranate tree. Jonathan decides to do something, and Saul's accompanied by um, this, this high priest, the dethroned high priest. If you remember the curse of Eli, he said that, that his descendants would be nothing um, in, the, in the temple anymore. In fact, they, they'd have to ask for a piece of silver from the, the, uh, the priest there um, to even be able to eat, right? So this, this is who's with Saul. But if you remember, he didn't really have a whole lot of choice in this matter because where was Samuel? Samuel had taken off after church, uh, chapter 13 when Saul decided to offer the sacrifices on his own. So there's Saul. He's with 600 knee knockers and the nephew of where's the glory, right? And no one notices, but Jonathan slips away. And he says, so it gives us a little bit of detail here. It says, between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over, there was a sharp crag on one side and a sharp crag on the other. So let's take a look at that. There you go. That's where it happened, folks. This is really real stuff that happened in really real places. So, um, there's Geba right there. There's Michmash. And if you notice, the land is, has got all these little fingers of ridges that go down into the land there. It makes it really hard. It's kind of flat, so you can't really tell. But it makes it really hard to go across this land unless there's a pass, which is the pass right there. Right? <laughs> so the pass is where all of these Philistines have come in, and they're camped at Michmash. Okay? And Saul and Jonathan are down here somewhere. And they, they, uh, they, the days come, the riders, the raiders went up this way, they went down that way, and they went out that way. So all that is blocked off. And there's Jonathan. And he says, hey, let's go climb that. Right? If you remember, so that, the picture that I'm about to show you is this right here. Okay? So you've got a steep crag on this side, and a steep crag on this side, and then up here it's flat. So if you traverse this land, you either had to go on the flat part or you had to go in the pass. So all the Philistines are over here. They're numbered like the sand of the sea, right? Jonathan's down here, and he says, hey, let's go over to those Philistines over there. Sounds legit, right? You want to climb that thing with uh, armor and a sword and all sorts of equipment? Sounds great, right? So then we get to verse 6. He says, come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. It's hard to define what makes this, this statement so awe-inspiring. Even reading it here today for like the 20th time. Right? I've read this at least 20 times. But it still puts fire in the gut and grit in the teeth. Look at what he says. Let us, let's go over there. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. First, there's a, there's a well-armed mass of humanity on the other side. right? But Jonathan looks at those enemies and he says, those aren't my enemies. Those are God's enemies. And that's a very dangerous place to be. It's a very dangerous place to be an enemy of God. You start to see why uh, David and Jonathan became such good friends. 
right? They, they, they realize God's enemies are not to be feared because God will fight them. He says, perhaps. If you remember before when they, the Israelites went into battle and they kind of lost a little bit, so they came back and they said, oh, bring the ark. We'll make God fight for us. If the ark is here, he's going to fight for us. But Jonathan doesn't say that. He says, perhaps. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. He knows this because he, he says it because he knows that God will protect his people, but he is not required to act in a certain way. Right? He's not, he's not required just because you have his box to do what you say. Like, a, like Jesus, a thousand years later, Jonathan is saying, not my will be done, but yours, Lord. Yours, Lord. Perhaps the Lord will fight for us. And then he says something that his father never really understood. He said, the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Right? Jonathan didn't know it, but there was a famous man 3,000 years later that Jonathan was quoting here. His name was Frederick Douglass. And he, and he said this. He said, one and God make a majority. Right? And that's what Jonathan was saying. One and God make a majority. If I'm on God's side, I'm not worried about anything. Because God is not restrained to save by many or by few. And just when you, when you didn't think you could have any better example of faith, right? It's, it's, it's such a beautiful picture of, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to step out in faith. You get his, Jonathan's armor bearer. We don't even know his name. We just know him as armor bearer. Right? And he says, do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am. That means when you turn, I'm there. When you turn, I'm there. I'm right behind you. With, and according to your desire. What an amazing set of verses. What an amazing faith shared between these men. One of the things I was talking with Allison about this week is as, as your pastor, they're, they're, it's so encouraging to see the different things that happen around the church. To see when people come in and give me counsel or when people send me text messages to encourage me. Or when people spend their Saturday decorating the church to make it something beautiful, something that we can all enjoy until I break it, right? <laughs> it's, this, this armor bearer is such a beautiful picture of, of the way that this church likes to step up. That this church, when we, when we had Edward and we put out that little list there and we said, hey, we need people to bring meals to Edward. I saw a lot of people on there. I don't know for sure, I don't, but... There are some people on there that maybe didn't even know it. They just knew he was a child of God. And that he'd served this church faithfully. You know, Edward brought food every week. He would bring food in for somebody that needed it. Anybody. He didn't even know who it was going to. He just brought it in and said, give it to somebody that needs it. Every week. And then you guys stepped up and provided dinners. That's such an encouragement. Such an encouragement. Jonathan and his armor bearer. So Jonathan decides to hatch a plan. He says, behold, we'll cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait, we come to you, wait till we come to you, we'll stay in our place and not go. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hands. So he says, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go out and show ourselves. And if they, they say, stay there, we'll, we'll, we'll know that we're just going to stay there and fight. But if they say, come to us, then we know that God has given them to them. Is that how we pray? That's, 
I was writing this this week and I was so convicted. Is that my prayer? God, make things difficult so that I can know that you're with me. I don't pray that way. Not all the time. It's pretty rare if I do. Make things difficult so that I can know that you're with me. I want it served up on a golden platter with all the trimmings. And the second I encounter a little bit of difficulty, well, God ain't with me. God isn't with me. I encounter difficulty. Dear friends, please don't be lulled to sleep by this lie from the pit of hell. This God wants everything in your life to be perfectly neat, in little boxes and smelling of sweet perfume. It's hogwash. We often hear Philippians 4.13 quoted, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Right? I can make it through this Starbucks line through God who strengthens me. <laughs> it sounds great until you look at the words around that verse. If, you, if you've got your Bible there, uh, you can turn to uh, Philippians and uh, chapter 4. And let's look at the context of this. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Paul is, is talking to the Philippians. They had sent him a gift to support his ministry. And he says there in verse 11, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. <coughs> Paul isn't concerned about whether or not he's going to get through the Starbucks line. He's not concerned whether his 80-inch big screen TV is acting up. His concern was survival. Survival. And he learned to trust that Jesus was there to provide what he needed. And that he would provide what he needed. Just like Jonathan trusted Yahweh to provide the protection of Israel that day. And so he hatches this plan and he puts it into action. Verse 11, when, when both of them had uh, revealed themselves. Oh, I got crazy there. I think I reversed the order there. There we go. So uh, when both of the the um, both of them revealed themselves, the Philistines look down and they say, "Behold, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves." <laughs> and so they hail down to Jonathan, "Come up here, we'll show you a thing or two. Come on up." And Jonathan says, "I, I don't know. A lot of rocks. Really sharp. I could fall." Now Jonathan turns to his armor bearer and says, "Come up after me." For the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. And he climbs up on his hands and his feet. And, and the surprise of the text, you know, they, they revealed themselves, but when you look at a, a canyon like that, unless you're standing over the edge and looking down, you're really not going to see somebody coming up. So they see him and they, they do their little insult. And they probably go back to their cars and, you know, they say, don't you see that guy? And all of a sudden, boof, here comes Jonathan popping over the hill swinging a sword. And he knocks him down, and, and, and his armor bearers behind him, you know, making sure they're dead all the way, and it kills 20 of them like that in a, in a flash. 
and a half furrow of, of, of an acre of land, 20 men. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Remember what I told you to look for in the Old Testament. We're looking for uh, emphasis. We're looking for repetition. So read verse 15. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it became a great trembling. God took that little act of faith, and it was like it was like hitting a tuning fork. It went ding, and it went like this, and everything started shaking. The earth started shaking, and the, the Philistines got scared, and they, they didn't know what was going on, and, and they, they started freaking out, and, and, and the, the earth is roiling underneath them. So what was Saul doing at this time? That mighty king, remember him? The mighty king that will lead us into battle! Well, he's still sitting under that pomegranate tree with the knee knockers and Mr. What is, where's the glory's nephew? That earth starts shaking, and it wakes him up. Right? His, his watchmen say, something's going on down there. The, the, the people are coming here and there. It's, it's, it's a mess. You know, if you've ever seen a video of like a, a riot or, or a, a stampede, you know, when, when people freak out and there's this mess, it's just confusion. and People are going here and there. Nobody knows where's, where's up and where's down. And, and it, it's, it's super confusing. So Saul has a brilliant plan. He says, hey, let's count how many people are here. He likes to count. He did it before. He's doing it, he's doing it again. And they count, and he realizes that Jonathan is gone. Ah, oh, Jonathan. What am I going to do with that kid? So he says, bring the ark. Bring the ark. For the ark of God was, for the ark of God was with the sons of Israel at that time. And as a, as a king, he was probably sitting there going, something is going on, and I'm king, so I should get into this. But he pauses for a second. And it's a good thing. This is good. Because you were supposed to consult the Lord before you went into battle. The king was supposed to do that. So this is actually a good thing. He's seeking the counsel of the Lord before going into battle. And so this begins what I like to call, for the rest of the passage, the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, it was good. He called to consult the Lord before moving, but we quickly go to the bad. Because as Saul is talking to the priest and the, the ark is coming, uh, he notices the commotion in the camp of the Philistines is getting even bigger, even bigger. And there's, there's, there's war cries and everything. And he, he, he says, withdraw your hand, withdraw your hand. So he starts doing good by consulting the ark for God. But just like in chapter 13, things start moving around him. And he says, okay, forget about God. I'm going to handle this. I'm going to handle this. I got to get out there. I'm the king. We'll never know what God would have told Saul if Saul ever got around to asking him. We'll never know what would have happened. But we do know that when someone disregards God's orders, the result is not the best thing that God has for that person. God can redeem any situation. There was another Saul. He turned Paul. He can attest to that. But how much better would it have gone if Saul had followed God's orders on that We'll never know. The verses move along now. We start to get a, a clearer picture of just what was going on in the Philistine camp. By the time Saul gets there, they get there, and everybody's fighting themselves. And the, the, the Philistines had actually had some Hebrews that had defected. 
to them. They saw the size of the army. They said, there's no way. I'm joining the winners, right? I want to be on the right side of history. And so now this is going on, and they've turned on the Philistines, and now they're attacking the Philistines. So you've got Israelites wearing Philistine armor attacking Philistines. Now the Philistines are like, who do I fight? Because I, my enemy is wearing my uniform. It's very confusing, and, and against the Geneva Convention, I had. <laughs> and they're, they're fighting amongst each other, and, and they don't really even have to do anything. You just kind of sit there and watch, because they're just fighting. They don't know who to fight. They just stab everybody. And in, in, in and amongst that, remember all those people that were hiding in the pits and the caves and the brambles and all that? They hear something good is going on, so they want a piece of the action. So they come running up. And remember, remember this, because God does so much through this. But we, I, I skimmed over this a couple of times, and then like, we're about the third time I was like, wait a minute. The Israelites didn't have any weaponry. I remember Saul and Jonathan. They were the only ones with swords. So a bunch of unarmed Israelites come running up, and what do they see? A bunch of dead Philistines with a bunch of swords. And just like that, the Israelites are armed, right? They've, there was a sea of humanity out there. Everybody can have two swords, who knows, you know? And shields and, and everything, metal. God provides. What an amazing event. This section closes with, so the Lord delivered Israel that day. The Lord delivered Israel. Yes, Jonathan had a little bit to do with it. Right? God let him be a part of it. But the Lord delivered Israel that day. And I wish, man, I wish we could just end it there. I wish that was just the end of the story. And we could just do, we could, we could just say, Jonathan rocks, Saul stinks, God saves the day, the end. But if you remember, I said it was the good, the bad, and the ugly. And now I have to give you the ugly. Because life is like that. When someone has sins, it has repercussions. To be sure, we're, we're saved by grace. 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. But that is not a promise to remove the natural consequences for our sin. Right? If I were to just go over and punch Brent in the face, I could be forgiven eternally for that, but there would be earthly consequences. Like maybe Brent would punch me back. Or maybe I'd go to jail. Which leads us to the ugliness of this passage. If your Bible has the same headings as mine, uh, the heading above the next set of verses is Saul's Foolish Order. I still can't get over the thought of someone writing a book about all of my foolish decisions for the rest of the world to read. That would be rough. But the simple fact of the matter was, it was a foolish order. If you go to, to, to verse 24, and you remember what I told you about hyperlinks. And so the, the uh, Bible tells the story, and we get that whole story. And then the, the rest of the passage is kind of like a hyperlink. If you want to know more about the story, click here. And we click there, and we're taken in right about the time that Saul said, pull the hand, pull your hand away from the ark. Let's get into this. Let's go fight. And we pick up in, in, in verse 24 there. And it starts with, now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day. And you go, wait a minute. Wait, just, let's go back up. You just said the Lord delivered Israel that day. What do you mean the, the Israelites were hard-pressed that day? Oh, yeah. 
Saul's foolish order. Right? For Saul had put the people under an oath. Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food with him. Let's just stop and think about that for just one second there, right? Did God order this? No, because God's not foolish. In fact, did you see God anywhere in what he said? My, me, my. We left Jonathan, uh, perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. We left that at the rest stop 30 miles back, and we blew right into Pride Town, right? Remember, remember, we're looking in the Old Testament for emphasis. We're looking for repetition. What do you see? His repetition? I, my, myself. So whose order is this? Saul's. And it's foolish, hence the name Saul's foolish order. How much food do you think Israelites had eaten before now? Maybe some of those 600 Menacher guys, you know, maybe they had some food because they were with the king. But the rest of those people were hiding in pits and brambles and cellars. They probably hadn't eaten very much over the last couple days. And even the guys that did have food, if you're about to go into battle, your nerves are a little jangled, you're probably not eating very much. And then he says to the guys, I know you haven't eaten much the last couple of days, but let's go do one of the most intensive physical activities in the world. Oh, by the way, no snacks. No snacks. I have uh, I have two nephews, Caleb and Kyle, and they, they do sword fight, like actual like sword fights. And they wear all the padding and everything like that. And it's kind of like fencing, except it's you know with real swords. And sorry if anybody likes fencing. <laughs> um, but they, they had the gear out there for me, and they said, you, you want to try? I was like, sure. So I put it all on, you know, got the sword. I'm like, I outweigh these kids by like 60 pounds. I'm going to tear these kids up. Man, those kids, you know, I was bouncing around. I couldn't see where I was going and everything. And within five minutes, I was just coated in sweat. Because you're moving around, and you're swinging this thing around, and you're, 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 it's exercise. It's physical. I got out of the thing. It was, I was... I was wasted, and that was back when I was in pretty good shape. Now imagine you haven't eaten for two days. You're fighting. You're running. And we see the ludicrousness of this order. Verse 25, all the people in the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was flow of honey, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the land was literally flowing with milk and honey. Remember, that's what they call it, land flowing. They weren't lying. I wouldn't have been surprised to find a milk waterfall next to it. It was flowing with milk and honey, and they're running past it, fighting, and they can see it. But nobody eats. And here go these half-starved Israelites chasing after the Philistines. And they're literally running through fields of honey. It's like, it's like taking an aerobics class in Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. It's just, they're just surrounded by it. The problem is you have a knucklehead for a king, and he said no eating. Jonathan comes along, and he hasn't heard this because he was actually out doing something. And he takes the tip of his staff, and he sticks it in the honey, and he puts it to his mouth. And the words there, his eyes were brightened. You ever been like that, where you've been so hungry, and finally you eat something, and you're just like, whoa, I feel better again. <laughs> Jonathan's eyes were brightened, and one of the people ran over and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. your father strictly put the people under an oath. 
Cursed be the man who eats food today. Look at what Jonathan says. My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have been brightened because I tasted this honey? How much more if only the people had eaten free today of the spoil of their enemies which they found? For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. The trouble uh, there is the Hebrew word yukar. And it was used to describe somebody else's actions. Uh, if you remember Achan, when the Israelites came into the promised land, uh, they were they were marching around Jericho. The walls were going to fall. God made a rule. He said, take it out, but you can't take any of the plunder. Leave it. Just leave it. So they did. And there's this one guy, and he was running along, and he saw a nice-looking robe, and he thought, oh, my wife might like that. He saw a big pile of gold and silver. He's like, hey, no, you have that second mortgage I need to pay off. Grab it. And he took it to his tent, and he hid it under his tent. And then they, the, the Israelites, after Jericho, they went to this little itty-bitty town. It was a podunk, one-stoplight town. And they're like, oh, we don't even need to send that many people up there. So they sent them up there, and they got whooped. Whooped. To the point where the, the citizens of Ai chased them. They got whooped so bad. And they came back to the camp, and they said, what's going on? And, and the, the actions of Achan are, are actually used here. Yakar, he troubled Israel that day. Men died because of what he did that day. That's what Jonathan is saying about Saul's order. He's troubled Israel. And he doesn't stop there. He points out that they would have been able to, to fight better if they were able to eat. And as, as spot on as, as Jonathan was with his assessment of his father's orders, he, had, he, he couldn't even foresee where that order would take them that day. Verse 31, they... They struck among the Philistines, and the people were very weary. Uh, they went from Michmash to Ahajalon. Uh, That's about 15 miles. So you're, right, you're running, you're fighting, it's 15 miles. The people were weary, shocked. The people rushed greedily upon the spoil. They took the sheep and the oxen and the calves, and they slew them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. We know that's bad, right? Genesis 9.4, Leviticus 3.17, Leviticus 7.26. There's more. But there's plenty of verses that say you don't eat meat with the blood. You're supposed to hang it up, cut its throat, and let the blood drain out. Um, and then somebody goes to Saul and says, hey, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating the blood. Again, Saul, the king, the guy in charge, isn't the one that's noticing. It's somebody else that noticed. So Saul, he makes a little, a little deal there. He handles it. He sets up a little uh, thing where they can drain the blood. And he feels pretty good about himself. Like, I stopped the people from sinning. Never mind, he caused it. And he, he hatches another one of his schemes. He says, let's, let's run through the night and catch up with these Philistines. Before they get back to their hometown, I want to catch them and I want to kill them. I mean, it's not a terrible idea, but look at their response. Do whatever seems good to you. You can almost hear the exhaustion and defeat in the response. I mean, they've done a run and gun for 15 miles with no chow. Now they finally got chow. Now they're exhausted. Their bellies are stuffed with lamb chops. And Saul says, hey, let's go do some more running. And to their credit, they agree, but right about that time, someone in the back clears their throat and mentions, hey, you know, there's this guy, God. Right? Oh, yeah, I forgot about him. Saul says, he says, uh, uh, so the priest says, let us draw near to God here. Saul had forgotten about that. 
I don't have anything personally against Saul. I've been hard on him, but mainly because the text is hard on him. But how many times do we charge off in situations without praying about it first? How many times have we said, I just need to get this done, and not sought after the creator of the cosmos' guidance? Well, that's what Saul did, and he's reminded. And so he does the right thing. He inquires of the Lord, and God doesn't answer him. And when God doesn't answer in verse 38, Saul says, Draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate to see how this sin has happened today. I hope the irony of that statement isn't lost on us. Right? I mean, seriously, Saul has been disregarding God's commands and God's power all day long. Not to mention, he's the reason that Samuel wasn't there to guide him in the first place. And although everyone is held personally responsible for their sins, his order led to the starving Israelites to eat meat with blood in it. But yeah, let's look somewhere else to see why God isn't responding, right? Verse 39, where as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, though it is Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not one of the people answered him. And a hush just falls over the crowd. And I have to wonder if some of those men there were in the battle at, at Jabesh Gilead. Remember after he defeated the Ammonites, the guy that wanted to gouge everybody's right eye out? And there were those guys that had said, who is this Saul? Who that can lead us? And after the battle, everybody said, who said that? Who is this Saul? Let's kill them. And in Samuel 13, 1 Samuel, uh, I don't think it was 13. I think it was further back than that. Don't quote me on that one. Saul defeats the Ammonites. Yeah, so that would have been 11, not 13. He says, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Now, flash forward a couple years, and he's saying, even if it's my son Jonathan, he's going to die. What a difference a year or two makes. From humble to proud in a few short months. C.S. Lewis once said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. And we certainly see that Saul is fixated on everything but God at this point. So Saul continues. He said, fine, we're going to separate. Uh, Jonathan and I will be on this side. Everybody else on that side. We're going to cast lots. And they cast lots, and they whittle it down to Jonathan. Something happened with Jonathan. And Saul channels his inner Samuel. He says, he says, what have you done? Problem is, Saul was no Samuel. It would have been like a kitten trying to roar like a lion. We remember Jonathan didn't even know about his father's oath. And when he found out about it, he criticized it, but he didn't break it again. So Jonathan steps up, looks the king in the eye and says, I had a staff tip of honey. I guess I need to die. Have you ever heard somebody say, when you say it like that, it does sound kind of bad, right? That's what a normal person would hear here. The king acted rashly. His son broke his commandment ever so slightly and in ignorance, and now he's supposed to die for it? Well, when you say it like that. But that's not how Saul reacts. He goes all in and says, yes. That's what I'm saying. And God strike me dead twice if I don't kill you. It's a day that started with such promise and zeal for the Lord. And it's come to this. 
There's just one little problem with what Saul says. You see, the people knew, just like we know, that the mandate was a foolish one. And it was a man-made one. <coughs> Excuse me. And here you see what happens when you trade God for a king and make a man your king. The king can be overruled. Verse 45, the people say to Saul, Must Jonathan die, who has brought about this great deliverance in Egypt? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. And just like that, Saul's authority melted away as Israel intervened. The people could see who was working with God and who was working against God that day. And Saul's influence on the matter melted like a snow cone in July. And so did the chance that they really had to lay it to the Philistines and keep them from attacking anytime soon. Because after that big emotional exchange there, verse 46, it says, Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. It was such a it could have been such a day. They could have wiped this enemy out. But Saul had to get up and put his big goofy boot in the mess. He makes a goofy order, demoralizes his troops, threatens to kill his son. A day filled with so much promise of deliverance and unity dies, and everyone heads home. I think probably dragging a little bit. I'm sure they were tired, but there was a different pall on the crowd that day. Their mighty king, the one that they thought that would bring them such status, such power, such glory, such honor, was, after all, just a man. We've got to hurry for time here. I'm only slightly encouraged by the, the next several verses. I'm not going to take a time. If you want to read those, you can. It really just highlights Saul's accomplishments as he continues to be king. He conquers. Uh, everywhere he goes, he has victory in battle. And after reading that, you may wonder why I said I'm only slightly encouraged. Because as we read those final verses, which sum up Saul's remaining time as king, we see that the king is mighty militarily. He wins his battles everywhere he goes. But you never see anything about Saul's heart. He never turns back to God. He never, like David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Forgive me. And it should remind us of just what it takes to make a good leader. The world tries to pick its leaders based on outside influences. And as we read those last few lines, it's easy to think that God made Saul successful. He did, in this world. But we know that God looks at the heart. And as we measure the success of a leader, the world's opinion is irrelevant. As we look at this chapter and the chapter before it, we look at how Saul served the Lord. We look at how Jonathan served the Lord. Saul, uh, poor Saul, we picked him to pieces the last couple Sundays. But again, we were following the text. His heart was not there. It, it played second fiddle. God played second fiddle in whatever was going on. His, his faith was situationally deep. It was there as long as there wasn't something going on. Saul paid lip service to God. But when things went off kilter, Saul turned to Saul not God, for what to do. Jonathan, on the other hand, implicitly trusted God. His faith was immovable. He inspired everyone. He inspired me, inspired us on how we should want our faith to be. And it would be easy to wrap this sermon up with a quick, be like Jonathan, not Saul. 
And the next time we all bumped into a horde of bloodthirsty Philistines, we would know exactly what to do. But we aren't often asked to battle Philistines. So what are we as followers of Christ asked to do? In Matthew 16, uh, verses 24 through 26, uh, Jesus is speaking. And Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So we may not be asked to scale cliffs or fight a seashore's worth of Philistines, but we do have this challenge. Take up your cross. Lose your life, your earthly wants, your earthly desires, and take on the desires of Christ. And some days that might feel harder than climbing a cliff. Some days the pull of this world can feel overpowering. The enemies of our godly lives can feel as numerous as the sand on the sea. And in the moment, in the heat of the battle, it will seem like there is no other choice. Maybe you'll think your job depends on it. Maybe you'll think your survival depends upon it. Maybe you'll think that standing up for your biblical convictions will cause you to be cast out of society. And you will justify violating God's command by saying you had to force yourself. And the second you do whatever it is that you have justified in your head, a Samuel shows up and says, what have you done? And that's going to happen. We're all sinners saved by grace, amen? It's going to happen. And when this happens, remember the grace-infused power of Christ's blood. Turn to the cross and lay that down at the foot of the cross there. Lay that sin down and press forward, always looking forward, never back. But I want to challenge you today. How much stronger would our lives be? How much more powerful our witness for Christ if, like Jonathan, we just say perhaps? Perhaps the Lord will work for you. We know his character. We know how he loves us. We know that Christ died for us. So perhaps, because we know that the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few, how would our lives look with that sort of faith? How would this church look? If we all come together and trust that the Lord causes the earth to rumble and the dead to be raised, how would our church look if, as a Brentwood Bible Fellowship family, if we, if we acted and operated in the faith of perhaps God will save this community, for God is not restrained to save by many or by few. In closing, every army has a song in March 2. It's a, a rally cry. Something that as we do as we battle through this week in our own lives, as we're called to, to pick up our cross every day and, and crucify the, the wants of the flesh and, and the wants of the world. Something you can maybe hum or whistle or maybe maybe you can sing it. I don't know. I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to leave the, the singing and the preaching to Paco. He does it better than I do. <laughs> I want to read this to you. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus and to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise and to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust thee. 
how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust thee more. As we go through our week this week, I would encourage you to examine what it means to take up your cross, examine what it means to live your life for Christ, what it means to trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you for this time. Thank you for both the examples of Jonathan and Saul. Lord, we pray that, that we would be like Jonathan, that we would just say, perhaps the Lord will help me, and I'm going to go do this. But Lord, we know that there are times where we are like Saul, and we say, I've just got to handle this. I'll force myself to do it. And we pray that in those times that you would give us grace, that you would pull us back to you, or that we would, our hearts would return to you, and Lord, we know that either way, even if we're a Jonathan or a Saul, you are the one that does the work. You are the one 